This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Uh, where we like to say that we're sharing the real story behind the titles of um, some incredibly accomplished women leaders from around the world. My name is Sue Rocco, and we have a great show for you today. My guest joining me is Karina Chicano, and Karina is the author of You Play the Girl. She's also a contributor for the New York Times and several other publications. We're going to be joined by her in just a moment. And later in the show, stay tuned for our watch team. We'll be joined by Dr. Marianne Ritchie of Jefferson University Hospital for our Health Watch segment. And we have a brand new contributor joining us today as well. Her name is Holly Dowling. Holly's going to be joining us for a weekly inspirational watch, we're going to call it. And she's an incredible international speaker. Uh, keynote speaker and thought leader who's going to fire us up every week with her wisdom and her positivity and her insights on leadership. She works with many Fortune 500 companies. Uh, be sure to visit our website as well at womentowatch.net to see our latest lineup of guests and to listen to the podcast if you happen to miss the live show. And now I'd like to welcome to our show, Karina. Again, Karina Chicano, the author of You Play the Girl and a contributing writer for the New York Times. Karina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to have you I'm here today. Thank you. Good, good. I, you know, your book is is so timely, um, and I thought the first question I would ask you to give the listeners a sense of the book itself is where that title came from. You play the girl. Oh. Yeah, the title. It's um, I, I, I hope it's not immodest to say. It. I love the title, but um, and it came from something that uh, an actress uh, said in an interview about a decade ago. I, I was reading um, an interview with Isla Fisher, and uh, shortly after she was in this movie, The Wedding Crashers, where she kind of stole the show, and she was asked um, if 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 she'd been offered a lot of lead roles in comedies and she said that she hadn't because um in hollywood all the all the parts are written for men and you play the girl so i just thought that was an amazing um like summation of the situation and i used it for my title yeah so so you play the girl as opposed to you know kind of describing a character and 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 talking about the you know the importance of that role yeah i think that the um, the thing that really struck me about what she said was that it kind of makes no sense, and yet we all know exactly what she's talking about. Right. And so the the cognitive dissonance of that, like that that we know what the girl is, um, that 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 it's a type in the movies um, and in TV shows, that it's always been a kind of um, you know that that it's a that it's a literary um, trope, 
usually referring to um, an ingenue on her way to marriage or, you know, the, the girlfriend of the character, of the main character, um, is uh, is really interesting. Um, and that, that sort of being the girl is thought of as almost as its own personality type, you know, as, as actually characteristic. Yes. And, you know, Karina, you've shared in the book that... Um after your daughter was born, you you kind of decided to rewrite your own story. And I love how you say that. And I wanted to kind of go back and talk a little bit about your younger self and, um, you know, what laid the groundwork for for you to eventually write this book. And your family was born in Peru. Um, Mm -hmm. You actually never lived there. But as a child, you moved around a great deal. Um, Tell me what first of all, tell me what that kind of moving from place to place, how that shaped who you are today and, and the choices that you make? Well, I think that it was um, incredibly formative and and that it actually probably contributed a lot to my becoming a writer and specifically a critic. Um, you know, it's funny, like there's so much, we talk so much about identity and, 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 and how it relates to sort to our origins nowadays, and we also talk so much about immigration. But I feel like my experience, which is not as uncommon as people would think, <laughs> um, is sort of different. And it was sort of a, a kind of um, it's a common way of life, I think, among a lot of people who um, work for multinational corporations or um, similar um, have similar kinds of lives, where you sort of um, there's a way of like living in the world where 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 you kind of can move from place to place and and experience very different cultures, but also continue, you know live in see a sort of how um, how similar places can be, you know. Um, and but for me, I think that it gave me um, this sort of permanent outsider looking in status where I feel like it on the one hand it gave me an ability to sort of fit in it anywhere and feel at home anywhere and uh, nowhere at once and I think that for a critic or someone who's looking at culture and examining the stories that were told um, and that that were told are basically reality it's a really valuable trait it really allowed me to sort of always step outside the quote-unquote story and to look at like was this is this true or real, or is this just sort of how we're made to think about our situation? And would you say it also kind of um, gave you this sense of not feeling comfortable, satisfied, or at ease when you're someplace for too long? Because as an adult, you moved around quite a bit as well in California. Um, I, it must have. Yeah, yeah. I, I discovered that pretty early as a young adult. I think, you know, I remember going to college and thinking, oh, I'm going to be here for four years. That sounds so great. And then um, my junior year, I ended up going to Paris for the year because I was like, I really need to get out of here for a year. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I, I, I talked to a lot of women that, uh, you know, their their childhoods were um moving around from place to place. And I see that commonality where, you know, all of a sudden something just makes you want to move and, and go someplace else. So it kind of stays with you. It's interesting. Really? That's interesting yeah. that you do talk to a lot of people like that. Yeah, I think that it's, it's funny to me how a little um, I see that kind of um, life talked about, public, in, you know, in the sort of 
in 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 the public discourse you know we we talk so much about like um about about immigration and roots and things but it's like you know a large part of the world is kind of um at home in the world and there is a world in which um you know we really have a lot in common and we really are, are able to like move move back and forth and and experience things from different angles. Right. And and be amongst people of different cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a, a little bit about the book as far as, again, what what the um, the main focus of it is kind of dissecting and analyzing the messaging that has been in media and advertising. And um, you growing up in the 70s and 80s, you, what you saw um, or experienced as a young girl was women being portrayed not as people, but rather a man's idea of what a woman should be. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's very interesting. And of course, again, what's happening currently in the world, I wonder how far we have come from that. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that we still haven't come very far at all. And, you know, it, as evidenced by the fact that I think a month or two after my book came out, the Harvey Weinstein story broke. And then in the past, you know, the past nine, ten months have been sort of one revelation after another, not just about um, sort of systemic harassment and abuse, but but also the the, the massive inequality that exists within um, all of our uh, sort of story making, you know, myth making, media making um, entities. So, you know, I think this is true across the board. It's true in corporate America. It's true in government. It's true in tech and Wall Street and everywhere else. But in but as we know, in media and in Hollywood, um, the ratio of, of of men to women making um, sort of writing the stories that we see, directing the stories we see, it's really imbalanced. So um, in that sense, we have not come very far at all. We've actually barely budged since the early 90s. There's study after study, year after year, confirms this. You know, I want to continue that conversation when we come back from our break. We'll be right back. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. You're listening to Women to Watch. My, I am your host, Sue Rocco, and I'm joined today by Karina Chicano. And Karina is the author of You Play the Girl. Uh, it's a reference to uh, an actress going in and, and questioning what her role is in a particular film and, and being told that she plays the girl. And Karina decided to really dive in and explore this and, and write a book about it. And just before the break, we were talking about how far have we come um, with the portrayal and representation of women in in media and advertising. And I think you were talking about we've not, in some sense, come that far. And I'm wondering if it's more that way in 
Hollywood and films and television than it is in in other industries? I, it, you know, it may be, but I think that you know we see a lot of the same um, the, the same power imbalance at the top of 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 most industries, especially those where you know a lot of money or power is at stake. Um, so I. I think that the problem, though, with um, Hollywood and and just media in general is that um, the those inequalities that are sort of internal are also kind of being pushed out in the form of the stories that we consume. So they do have a large, they maybe have a, a a bigger effect on the on the culture at large. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know, can you remember as a young girl the first time you saw um, an advertisement or a commercial with, you know, and kind of questioned the portrayal of the woman in that ad? I don't know if I, let me think. I don't know if I can remember a specific one, but yeah, actually I can. <laughs> I remember like the, do you remember those old Virginia Slims ads? Yes. Like my mom used to get Ladies Home Journal and I remember, you know, those Virginia Slims ads, which for people who are a lot younger are, were these cigarette ads that were specifically for women. And they usually pictured, you know, a model, um, a, a very sort of contemporary model smoking. And then there was a little, and it said the tagline was, you've come a long way, baby. And then the insert was a picture of like a Victorian woman being punished by her husband in some way or another, or by the authorities, by the police or whatever for smoking. And so the whole idea was, Smoking is liberation, um, and it's you, you know in the in the 19th century, women were not allowed to smoke, and now we've come a long way, and we're allowed to smoke. And I, I do remember being struck by um, by that, and by the idea that like you know, oh look, there was a time when women couldn't do this thing, and now now and now they can. So that was that was sort of. I think a little bit eye-opening, and then also just in general, um, there was the sense that I got very early on that you know, as a woman, you had to slot yourself into a type, you know, and that women were always kind of types, uh, and they were always, you know, I, I don't think that I thought in these terms, obviously as a child, but that there were, I could always sense this the way in which they were. Um, the object and I don't just mean like the inanimate object but just sort of not the subject you know not the thinking experiencing um um self and more like the the person that was being looked at yes yes and tell me about your your upbringing as far as um you know the messaging you got as a young girl from your mom was it a traditional upbringing yeah, you know, like I said, my dad was a pharmaceutical executive, and he got transferred all the time. And so the kinds of um, places that we live and schools that we went to, I think that in general, you know, everyone was kind of like me from all a lot of times from a lot of different countries. But 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 there we were maybe more than most kind of beholden to um, our dad's job, um, and and you know. My mom, the mom and the kids were more of a kind of a unit that sort of went, you know, got packed up along with furniture. <laughs> from place. place to place, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mom so, keeping everything in check. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that was sort of the job, you know, like that she would sort of reconstitute 
toot our house in the next place and make it look as much like the last place as she could. Right. And and I think that so there was that. There was also, you know, I'm sure like partly the fact that, you know, my parents were Latin American and like a little bit more traditional mm-hmm. um, in some senses. But then I also kind of hate to say that because in, in a lot of ways they weren't. And I and I remember that whether I was in the U.S. or whether I was visiting family in Lima or whether I was living in Madrid, I, I didn't know um, moms who worked. You know, I, I think I ha- maybe if maybe one or two, but it was always some extenuating circumstance or, you know, one of my mom's friends was a was a painter who was successful as a painter, but, st- you know, felt different. She's an artist. Maybe someone else got divorced and, and had to get a job, but then she got remarried and she didn't work anymore. So it wasn't something that I I was not seeing a world in which um, women were really independent. And yet in. In American media, I do remember being struck at a young age um, by portrayals of independent women, including in the Virginia Slims ads and on TV and in a lot of like the young children's programming at the time, which was very progressive and very much um, inspired by the women's movement. So there was this mixed message of like, you can do anything, you can be anything, look at Mary Tyler Moore, look at, you know, yeah, look right. at whatever. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but in my world, in my suburban world, you know, that I never saw that in real life. Yeah. That's... I dreamed of it, though. I think I dream- I thought, oh, I'm going to grow up and move to the city and be into- do my own thing. I did, I but I got that from stories. So in some ways, it's interesting because in some ways I feel like the stories um, often reinforce these um, certain traditional or limiting stereotypes, but at that time they also kind of gave a vision um, or even concurrently, you know, they still, they, they always, the messages are always mixed. So we always have a little bit of both, you know, you have the sort of aggressive stuff and then you have the stuff that I think girls look at and think, Oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to live like that. You know, that's a model for, for me. That, right. That's right. And I think the, 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 the interesting thing is that you weren't just kind of accepting of your own circumstance. You were dreaming of something different. So that was, you know, that longing for um, that independence was something innately in you. Um, well, I, I think that also, you know, it, it was innately in me probably, but I do think that I was probably inspired by a lot of what I saw. And at the same time, it's not like my family was, was telling me otherwise. You know, that's the interesting thing that I think, um, as much as we say that it's changed a lot, maybe has changed a little less than we admit, is that we don't, we don't tell girls, and we haven't told girls for, for quite a long time, that they can't do anything. But we say it, we say it in different ways. You know, maybe we don't show the models. Maybe we don't see how this can you know, um, we look around and we don't see a lot of um, great models for how this can be done. Mm-hmm. Or or when I was, you know, in my early 30s, there was a kind of the mommy wars were raging. And there was this idea of like choice, you know, as though the choice were purely personal and no other factors played into it. And there were no forces that would, say, drive a woman out of the workforce after she had a child or, um or no expectations like that. So it's really interesting, I think, how how confusing it all is for everybody. I think, you know, from generation to generation, we still don't 
you know, I wasn't being told you're not going to do this. Right. I, yeah. There's a lot we're still trying to figure out, but there's a, there's a lot of changes happening. And when we come back, I want to ask you your um, views on Gretchen Carlson's recent announcement this week. You're listening to Women to Watch. We'll be right back. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley Hillsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's fhbaird.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. Sue Rocco here with another week of Women to Watch, and I'm joined today by Karina Chicano, the author of You Play the Girl. And, uh, you know, I was thrilled to see this week an announcement by Gretchen Carlson, who's going to be heading the uh, Miss America, what she's no longer calling pageant, but competition, and the decision to eliminate, uh, you know, the women having to walk across the stage in bathing suits and high heels. Um, I think that's a long time coming. What are your thoughts? It is such an interesting and layered, (laughs) layered situation. I mean, I just, my first thought is I kind of go back to, um, the very first um, protest, the Miss America protest in 1968, which was sort of the the first large-scale feminist um, action of the women's liberation movement at that time. And, you know, it's, so it's really interesting to see this ha- happening now. Um, I guess, you know, on the one hand, it's it's great, and I see that she's she's talking about it's no longer a pageant, it's a competition, and it's about expressing your personal style and you know your personality and that that is great on the other hand i think it's still interestingly like uh this strange um i don't know what to call it (laughs) i don't know what kind of a competition it is but but it does still sort of um um sort of portray women as like this this idea you know the ideal of perfection and and the womanly ideal is um is something that is that is still kind of hovers over our culture a lot and it's kind of it, it, in a way it's it's very old and yet it's also not terribly old it's i think it's like a 19th century ideal and it is very much a media produced ideal you know at the time when like 
photography and newspapers were, were sort of coming into um, into the world and and um, the beginning of like the industri- industrialized capitalism, you suddenly had this sort of the image of the ideal woman, the, the woman mm-hmm. who of impeccable taste and style, who knew how to consume and spend her husband's money. All that is like, mm-hmm. it's a fairly new invention. Uh, it's about 150 years old. <laughs> I think right. that this yeah, idea of like the woman as this paragon of capitalist excellence, you know, is um, it's still a little problematic and, but it's fascinating. I mean, it, this is definitely, I guess, a step in the right direction if Miss America still can exist at all. It, well, that's right. And that's the question, I guess, you're you're kind of um, debating whether there should even be the Miss America uh, pageant slash competition. It, it, it's very interesting. And I think they're, they're leaning towards bringing out more substance from the women. But um, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see what they are competing for or in what you know i mean it's not it's not clear it's not a tennis match like it's hard to yeah say. you're right you're what, right yeah what, what is, is the, the sport that's right yeah it's, it's being a woman uh and you know it's not a chess competition it's not so it's not a debate you know a debate team meet yes. uh, so i don't good question don't yeah yeah It'll be interesting to see it kind of unfold, to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a quote here from the book. Um, you said, I, so you have a daughter, Kira, and mm-hmm. uh, you said, I hope Kira will outgrow all the fairy tales designed to keep her small and afraid long before I did. And a couple of questions on that. I, do, do you think that the those movies and, and films were really... Um, specifically designed for that? Or do you think it was just kind of an outcome of the cultural norms at the time? I think it's the latter. And I don't think that the cultural norms have changed all that much. Um, So it's definitely a kind of um, just a sort of repetition of what we're used to, right? The, the, the same stories kind of keep getting told. And it's a lot like the Miss America thing. It's like the same story. It just gets a little bit updated for the times. But, yeah. but at the heart of it, it's the same story. Um, it sends the same kinds of messages. And it teaches us to value the same kinds of things. Um, and it certainly doesn't promote, like, questioning the system. And I think that at, at the heart of it, it is that the people that are still creating these stories and financing them and writing them and directing them and greenlighting them and all, all the rest of it are the same kinds of people. You know, it's a kind of, um, it's, it's, it, it just replicates itself. And so the same kinds of stories get replicated and then, and then we're told, you know, even, even the media will respond in a way to say, Oh, this is a, this is a modern take on Cinderella, but it's, it's still Cinderella. You know? <laughs> right, in different clothes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, can you tell me when, how old were you or when was it that you had this um, kind of revelation about this messaging and how women and girls are, were being portrayed? You know, you're, you're referring to hoping your daughter, you know, kind of gets it before you do. When was it that you kind of... It's interesting. I think that for me, it was like, um, it's it's really hard to say because it, I could say that it was kind of always there nagging at me on the one hand, so as, long, as far back as I can remember. And then on the other hand, I could say 
I'm sometimes still surprised at, you know, when, when, when suddenly I encounter something that makes me rethink something that I've been conditioned to just accept. Um, so it's, st- it's, it's still an evolving process. So I think that what's interesting is that um, the t- part of what inspired me to write the book was that um, I feel like I've maybe in my lifetime, I've gone through like three or four of these sort of like feminist um, waves and backlashes. And the first one, I was very, very young. You know, I was a little kid, and I was just so I had no real understanding of it beyond how it was portrayed in the media, which in itself is is its own um, distortion, right? Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then, sort of, then being a young girl and teenager during a time where we were in a pretty massive backlash like after the equal rights amendment was defeated and the reagans were in power and you know but also not realizing that then either um and thinking that we were post-feminist and everything was solved now and everything was okay and that anything any anything that i encountered um that any obstacle i encountered was probably my own personal failing um which was which was a very popular narrative i think in the 80s and 90s. And then, you know, and then in the early 90s, there was another sort of riot girl revolution and, you know, third wave feminism and all in response to the Anita Hill hearings and sort of feeling very awake again at that time, thinking like, oh, yeah, you know, I know exactly what she's talking about. I've, you know, I was very young at the time, but sort of I'm very familiar with being treated a certain way at work or on the street, you know, um, and sort of realizing you know seeing her um in the, in those hearings with only men being questioned you know having her her credibility questioned was was very um it was it was kind of like the me too of of that time um and then again seeing that shoved back and by the time my daughter was born in 2008 i feel like we were at a real low point in the culture once again where um you know, there was it was just completely acceptable to openly say things like, oh, you know, if you're going to write about the Sex and the City movie, you have to say, you know, you have to question whether men will see it. Like, I remember at my job as a movie critic being constantly sort of made to ask that question. If this, you know, this question starts, this movie stars women, will men see it? You know, I'd never had to ask it the other way around. Mm. Um, so, so. This time, I don't know if it's the fourth time or something, and I feel like we always take a step forward, but it's always two steps forward, one step back. And um, the patterns really emerge. You know, you really start to see how how these, how, how, we, how this cycle uh, works. And um, so that's, so I hope that answers your question, but I think that that's basically, it's a kind of a constant awakening to new stages of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I, th- I think, too, just, you know, naturally, gener- every time there's a new generation coming through, um, you see changes and different views and reevaluating. And, and I guess the things that have been a certain way for hundreds and hundreds of years will take a long time to work themselves out. Um, you know, that's so interesting that you say that. And I don't, I feel like no one has um, really touched on this yet. 
people always say, oh, this new generation is different. But I certainly remember hearing that when I was in my 20s. And I'm sure that, you know, second wave feminists heard that in their 20s. And I think what it tells us that we actually aren't talking about very much is that when young women come into the world after having been told that they can do whatever they want and they encounter this, they rebel. But then it gets beaten back until a new generation comes of age and then they rebel. But it's like the problem, I think it's a disservice to say to say that we um, that the generations are different. Do you know what I mean? I think that we're coming up against the same problems generation after generation. Well, I, and the, the thing today that's different is that the message is so much more widespread and broad because of our ability uh, to say view opinions and share things via internet and social media. So yeah. it's kind of a, you know, it's a larger scale. Um, I'm joined by Karina Chicano, author of You Play the Girl. You're listening to Women to Watch, and we'll be right back. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's fhbaird.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. I'm speaking to Karina Chicano today, the author of You Play the Girl. You're listening to Women to Watch. And uh, Karina, I'd love to, to finish up with you talking about two things. One, I mentioned at the top of the show that you are a contributor for the New York Times Magazine and several other publications. And mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you where you go to find your inspiration uh, for these articles. Um, you know, for a long time, I was a critic on staff at several different publications. So a lot of it was I was writing about the culture um, just because I was really, really immersed and watching everything, really, uh, reacting. <laughs> so I guess I would go to, like, my reactions to things. Uh, nowadays, I guess it's a little bit le- – I'm, I'm, I'm not as immersed and I'm not spending all my time going to studies and reacting everything, but – I guess I've just gotten into the habit of um, sort of observing culture and thinking about it in that way and, and, and sort of observing my own reactions to it. You know, when I find myself thinking about something, when I find like um, something is like bugging me, that's when I realize like, oh, I, I, I have something to say about this and I kind of go and explore it. Yeah. Do you think you probably have seen a change becoming a mother? I think that changes us immensely. And to have this daughter who's now 10, I guess. Almost 10. Yeah. yeah. What kind of things are you saying to her um, that were not said to you as a young girl that you hope will help to build her own self-esteem and confidence? 
Mostly I just try to say, you know, rather than control what she sees, I try to talk, you know, within reason, I try to talk to her about what we see. So the other day we had a conversation about Beauty and the Beast and and it had to do with, I can't remember how it came up, but there was a, it, it had to do with this idea of like um, um, people seeming bad or doing bad things, but really on the inside, they're a very nice prince and you should marry him. And we had this conversation about like, <laughs> well, if this monster came along and abducted your dad, and then you went to save your dad and he took you in, you know, in, in your dad's, you know, he, he let you take your dad's place. And so then you were his prisoner. Do you really think that, you know, this is someone that you should fall in love with and marry at the end? Or should you escape and call the police? (laughs) (laughs) Call 911. Yeah. And it's really interesting because she was like, no, but see, but deep down, he's a nice guy. Like, deep down, he's a prince. And I was like, this is the story that worms its way into our head. Oh, that romance. Yeah. The romantic perseverance and the idea that, like, only I can see the true prince that he is on the inside and not this horrible beast who's abducted my father and then me, you know? (laughs) Well, you know, is there any redeeming quality in that, you know, just kind of um, wanting to see the best in people? Sure, and it was an interesting conversation. You know, she held up her side. She didn't necessarily capitulate my side. She was like, no, no, you don't get it. That's not what it's about. It's about, like, seeing... She said... She said, it's about um, how it's not the outside that counts. It's what's inside that counts. And I was like, that's a great message. But look at how you're being told that message. You're being told that it's okay to forgive this monster who kidnapped you and kept you captive. Like, <laughs> it's a very tough know? conversation to have with a 10-year-old. <laughs> well, who's... <laughs> it was. It was kind of funny. You know, it was yeah. kind of a fun debate. And I think, like, as she gets older, it's, it's, fun. it's a fun age because she's old enough to be able to, like, hold her. And she was like, you obviously don't get this movie. We didn't see the same movie. And I was like, yeah, but look at, you know, <laughs> examine the behavior, not just what you know, what they say. Right. Well, listen, well, at know, the at the end of the day, we just can have to continue having these conversations. And, um, you know, I think the awareness is always the first step in any situation. Um, mm-hmm. Listen, Karina, I thank you so much for sharing your story today and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you, Sue. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be back with one of our brand new Watch Team contributors, Holly Dowling. Holly Dowling is an international keynote speaker and a thought leader who's going to join us every week for our inspirational watch. Holly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. I'm thrilled and ecstatic to be here with you. Terrific. And I love that you're going to be talking about work-life boundaries today as opposed to work-life balance. Yes. And let's dive right into it because boundaries are what create the balance. And as human beings, we're always searching and seeking for what creates that work-life balance. So what I want to give you today is the inspiration and empowerment to start setting boundaries, work-life boundaries. And what does that mean? How many of you actually have non-negotiables for yourself? And many people don't. Let's start with that. You want to create the boundaries? It starts with setting parameters and knowing what to say no to. So you can start saying yes, where the world can be leveraged by your very best. No one gets the best of you. 
if we are always saying yes to everybody and everything. So start by having some non-negotiables. Put it in place for you. What are you willing to say no to? And let me share a personal example. And this is something I had to put in place a few years ago. I'm all over the place. I'm on the road all the time. I do what I love and I love inspiring people around the world. And I realized I was dying on the inside and losing my passion for life and for what this is about because I was spending so much time traveling on Sundays. And like many of you listening, that's part of your job. You probably have to jump on a plane on a Sunday. Well, I had to start saying no, and I was scared to death. I have to tell you that we build a volcano out of an anthill, and I actually thought I was going to lose clients if I said I will not travel on a Sunday. Here's the beauty and the magic of what happened. Not only did I not lose clients, they said, what time can you be here on Monday? And we're happy to start the event or the meeting then. So you see, by us learning how to have non-negotiables that really create the space for us to keep our priorities right, they were getting the best version of Holly. And the coolest thing that happened by setting my own non-negotiables is it began to have a ripple effect. This global client of mine, they began putting it in place for all their leaders around the world. So you never know the impact that you may have on another person out there, especially as a leader. That's fantastic advice, Holly. I'm so looking forward to having your segment every week to fire us up and give us great reminders and inspiration. We'll see you again next week. Love it. Thank you. We now have the lovely Dr. Marianne Ritchie with us for our Health Watch. What do you have for us today? Hello, Sue. Just returned from Washington, D.C. this week from our annual Digestive Disease Week. How fun is that? Over 14,000 GI doctors, surgeons, and liver specialists from around the world And the big buzz, the news from the American Cancer Society last week that colon cancer screening for average risk patients should now begin at age 45. Don't wait till age 50. Now, if you have a family history of colon polyps or colon cancer, you'll begin at age 40 and sometimes younger. But I'm happy to announce in recent years we've made great progress decreasing numbers of colon cancer cases and deaths in people over age 50 who are getting their screenings and the treatments are better. But now we see an increase in cases under age 50 and even under age 40. So ladies, we have a great program at Jefferson called Pink Plus, where you can come for three appointments at once, screening for breast cancer with a mammogram, a gynecology checkup, and a colon cancer screening in one visit. Or you can do two, GI visit with mammogram or GI with GYN. We've made it easier for you. Call 215-955-0865 to schedule your appointment. I often give a lecture called The Diva's Guide to Cancer Prevention. And my message, treat yourself like a diva. If you don't take care of you, no one else will. And we will put that phone number up on our website uh, immediately so people have it. Thanks so much, Dr. Ritchie. Thanks, Joe. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.